You are listening to Cortez Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM, and on the World Wide Web at CortezRadio.ca. Horses in Florida, chickens in the stable. If you be my one to love, love you and Radio, its board, staff, volunteers, or membership. This is Manda O'Fox Gillespie with Cortez Currents, a bear reality. What can we learn about coexisting with bears on Cortez Island? Bear sightings have been on the rise in BC over the last couple of years, more than doubling in many communities. BC is bear country, and Cortez is no exception. Bears have regularly swam over to feed on the fruits of abandoned orchards and spend some time on the island. This year, however, a young black bear overwintered. Why are we seeing so many bears all of a sudden? Many conservation and wildlife experts theorize that the drier weather is bringing many carnivores, including bears, to areas where there is more food, water, and where it's easier to smell out food sources. Others say it is just a continuation of the ongoing process of humans encroaching into bear habitat. Things are changing, and climate change is behind at least some of these incidents, says a story in the New York Times, which says that bears in the western U.S. are hibernating less because of climate change. A 2017 study finds that for every one degree Celsius that minimum winter temperatures rise, bears hibernate six days fewer. In short, though, there are a lot of reasons and no specific answers as to why there are so many bear sightings these last couple of years throughout B.C. Though the bear sightings are up, according to BC Conservation Officer Services, bear attacks are quite rare, and despite the higher numbers, there has been no rise in attacks or dangerous encounters. The increase in bear sightings has led some conservation officers on Vancouver Island to shift away from warnings and education to stiff fines for people who do not manage food attractants. Why this approach? Because a fed bear is a dead bear. This alludes to a very real truth, that while most bear encounters will result in bears leaving an area, bears can instead become more assertive or destructive or even change their hibernation or dinning patterns when they start to associate humans and human activity with food. And while most people know now not to feed bears directly or to leave food out when they camp, what is less understood is what constitutes as a fed bear. And the number one way that people feed bears is by putting food or organic waste in their garbage. 
I sought out our local biologist, Sabina Leader Mintz, to understand more about black bears and what we can learn about coexisting with these wild creatures from our previous successes as an island learning to coexist with wolves and about the bear primer that she created this May in response to the rise of bears on Cortez. Hello, Sabina. Good morning, Manda. Tell us a bit more about your wonderful self and how a marine biologist got into thinking about bears. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, yeah, we talk about, you know, wildlife. I think we're here really specifically to talk about um, coexistence with wildlife. And uh, the first thing I want to say in that discussion is that I'm not a wildlife biologist. I'm not a conservation officer or a wildlife biologist. Um, I got catapulted into that uh, situation of, of working in a project here that's 11 years old called uh, the Cortez Community Wolf Project. And um, uh, I am a marine biologist by profession. I'm an intertidal ecologist. And the largest carnivore that I ever really have to deal with is, uh, is a moon snail, for heaven's sake, uh, in the intertidal. So uh, I, I entered into the realm of wildlife coexistence um, by being catapulted in there through the loss of our family dog. In uh, 2008, it was the end of uh, 2008, and I went away with an incredible sense of personal loss, but I also went away with this uh, really, really strong overriding sense that I had, I had betrayed the wolves in some way. I had done something very wrong, and I felt very responsible for that, and so I just had to know what I had done wrong. And so I reached out to the only person I knew at the time who really knew something about wolves was a man by the name of Chris Daramont. And Chris is a, the lead researcher with the Raincoast Conservation Foundation, a professor at the University of Victoria. And I'd met Chris the summer before coming down through the central coast of BC and he was working with his team up there. So I got on the phone right away and I said, Chris, I've goofed. I need help. Um, can you help me with this situation in the community? And he was off to Africa the end of that week, and he said, I can't, I'm, I'm physically not here to help, but I'm going to put you in touch with a colleague. And that colleague was Bob Hansen, who at that time was the wildlife conflict um, officer for Pacific Rim National Park Reserve. And I called on Bob, and immediately he said, I'll help, I'll be there, I'll come to the community to, to address this issue. And uh, he said, I'm, I'm legally not allowed to do that unless your local conservation officer is present. And that presented a bit of a dilemma at the time, given that um, all that I had ever heard of being new on Cortez in the early 90s was that there was um, sometimes not the greatest appreciation for the conservation officers. Many of several, you know, people would talk about how conservation officers simply talked about how many cougars they'd bagged and so forth. And it's an unfortunate situation in that very few um, gave a reputation to the conservation officer service of you know, all of the good work that the, the men and the women are doing in that service, but very few of them with louder mouths and talking um, disrespectfully about uh, large carnivores especially. So I was reluctant to do that, but I had no choice. And Bob Hansen found out that the, the um, person in charge for the North Island and our local conservation officer was a man by the name of Ben York. And Ben had been a colleague of Bob's out on the West Coast. They had worked together. So the two of them, long story short, the two of them arrived in the spring of 2009 um, I had taken this idea of education, uh, learning how to coexist with carnivores uh, in the community of Cortez. I'd taken it to the Friends of Cortez Island uh, Society board, and they agreed. Uh, it was within their constitutional mandate uh, for wildlife and environmental concerns to address this. And so we invited uh, Bob 
Hansen and Ben York uh, to the Linnea Tiber Bay Center, and we had a hundred people. Uh, at least in that room, all wanting to know uh, what was going on. It was an interesting time. Uh, the wolves had, uh, we had observed a very dramatic change in the behavior of the wolves at that time, where the old saying is, a wolf that doesn't want to be seen is, is never seen. And all of a sudden, instead of traveling at the edges of the uh, fields, going around the edges, staying in the forest, suddenly the wolves were walking across the center of the fields. They were coming down people's driveways. They were um, following bicyclists uh, and, and cars, and it was very unwolf-like behavior. So it caught uh, our attention. And this was addressed by um, Bob and Ben when they came to speak to the community. Out of that very first meeting, which was a very charged meeting, there was a lot of fear and anxiety and concern uh, in the room uh, around the wolves and the change in the behavior. And uh, of course, we have this very, very long, long history uh, with wolves uh, in our culture. And so uh, we sat down right away, Bob and Ben and I sat down right away, and we produced what we call the five-point primer. And it was a primer that basically was um, teaching the community how to uh, behave, how to be responsible as citizens within the community. Our primary goal was that the Cortez community would be exceptionally clear and responsible with respect to boundaries, and that we needed to communicate those to the wolves. And so that primer, um, basically the five points were that we were never to feed wolves, never to feed the, um, the prey of wolves that may come um, into our front and backyards, to keep ourselves safe, to keep our pets safe, and to practice um, responsible animal husbandry. So that primer then gave uh, people in the community the opportunity to uh, have some guidelines with respect to how to uh, behave and how to very clearly uh, demark their boundaries for uh, the wolves themselves. And and so those boundaries were things like, never feed wolves. I'm not going to feed you. Don't come around um, my residence. I'm not going to feed the prey that you feed on. So I'm not going to provide you with raccoon and deer handy on my front lawn. Um, I am not going to allow you to consistently come through my residential space where I, with my family, reside. If you show your face, I've got an air horn on you and immediately and consistently will get you to leave that area and to back off. I'm not going to um, uh, make my pets available to you. I'm going to give a very clear message and communicate the pets are mine. So when I'm walking my dog, it will always be on a leash, which is the message um, for the wolves. I'm going to do the same thing with my livestock. I'm not going to have chickens running freely around my yard. I'm going to have them be behind a solid fence that you can throw yourself at, but you cannot get my chickens. And that's the clear, very clear message. That's the boundary. Those are mine. So uh, this was our primary goal, was just that we were clear, we were responsible with our boundaries. But over the course of the last 11 years, this was 11 years ago we started this project, over the course of those 11 years, I became very intrigued with the, with the wolves themselves. We were studying and researching out their behavior, learning amazing things um, about the wolves. And I became intrigued about the other side of that conversation, which was all about how are the wolves actually communicating their boundaries to us? We were, we were pushing it one way. What were they putting back the other way? And we learned lots. We learned about escorting behavior. We had so many examples of people on the island that would um, interact with a wolf. They'd be bicycling along, come around a corner. There was a deer kill, a wolf on it. And the next thing they knew, they were pedaling off as fast as they could, but the wolf was trotting beside them. We had people uh, walking down beaches 
and all of a sudden wolves would present themselves and put themselves right in front of them and walk with them for a certain length of, of time and then disappear. And it happened repeatedly and everybody was fearful and thought they were being they were being tracked by wolves. They, they were going to be taken by the wolves. And instead, it was a behavior called escorting. And the wolf was very clearly communicating, well, you just caught me on my kill here, and I'm just actually going to escort you a certain distance away to make sure that you are no longer right by my kill so that I can freely feed. Um, oftentimes, they would have pups in the bush or there would be a den nearby. People were going by. The wolves would then escort the people away and then when they disappeared was, you were clear and, and far enough away to make the wolves comfortable. So they were very clearly communicating this to us. But, you know, until we learn about those behaviors, we don't actually know what they're doing. We had a wonderful uh, young woman come to the community um, by uh, various crazy connections and communication. Grace Hayes came to us, and she's a Chickasaw First Nation um, member. She is a, um, a wolf medicine carrier for her people. And Grace came to us intrigued by what was happening in the community and, and the interaction with the wolves. And she had been involved in the relocation of wolves to Yellowstone and uh, ended up with one of the wolves that was uh, not healthy enough to be relocated and was to be put down. But instead, because of her status as First Nations, she was allowed to rear that wolf. And she raised her family with that wolf. So she learned wolf behavior. And this is what Grace shared with us. And it was incredibly valuable to the Cortez community. She met with many people. And um, Grace just called me up a year ago. And she said to me, she said, Sabina, she said, did you ever figure out what that, that amazing window was that we had into the lives of wolves? They were, there was this window that opened up from 2009 to 2011, wide open where we learned so much and they were very much in our face. And she said, so did you ever figure out what that was all about? And uh, none of the biologists could. None of the professionals that we brought in to assess the situation had any real idea that conservation officers wanted to say it was all habituated wolves and that people were feeding them, which I believe was untrue at the time. And the only answer that really resonated with me was um, uh, something I read. Uh, the health sick First Nations people in the central coast of BC say that wolves show themselves when they have something to tell us. And I said to Grace, I said, they had something to tell us. And she she laughed and she said, of course they did. She said, they came to renegotiate the boundaries. She said, Cortez, just like almost every other place in North America, she said, has trapped, has poisoned, has shot wolves uh, in the past. And these wolves, she said, they came to renegotiate those boundaries. And I thought about that and I had to laugh because as crazy as that sounds, they did. <laughs> they did. We sat down. We wrote the primer. We we created the boundaries and made them very clear to the wolves on our part. And um, and we had done this. There was another young woman who was visiting Cortez right in the in the peak of when the, the wolf window was open for us. And her name was Annie Haven. She's from the States and had friends here on Cortez, was up visiting, doing a writing retreat. She was a writer. And uh, just read a, a short piece that, that Annie wrote. She went around the island and she interviewed all of the people who had had encounters, very interesting encounters with wolves. Um, and this is what she wrote. She said, I'm grateful for the respect and listening in the island's gathering of this tapestry of wolf stories. And at the end of the summer, I stood uh, on the open deck of the ferry. She said, I thought about the islanders who have entered an ancient dialogue and have begun new conversations. What is possible, I wondered, if people learn to listen not only to each other, but also to the wolves? And the wolves, I think, are waiting. 
Well, Annie called me up beginning of January this year, and she said, hey, Sabina, she said, just checking in. I'm coming to visit Cortez this year, which unfortunately she couldn't due to COVID, but she was on her way to Cortez, and she said, I want to catch up on everything. And I said, Annie, I said, we're doing it. We're doing the dialogue. We have it happening here on Cortez. And she's very excited to come and to learn about this amazing communication um, that we had created and this renegotiation of the boundaries. So we were all very thrilled uh, that it was happening. So that is is how I got involved with wildlife coexistence uh, way outside of, of my field and have learned so much. And I've been so grateful to the extended community that I established in the beginning. That I say to everyone who's learning something, when you don't know something about something, you need to know, uh, reach out and bring others in. And we have the most amazing extended community of people supporting us, um, supporting Cortez Island in our uh, wildlife coexistence. And that is um, Chris Daramont, started with Chris Daramont, Paul Paquette, both uh, phenomenal researchers, carnivore researchers. And we have Helen Schwancha, who is the provincial veterinarian, has been invaluable source of help to the community in understanding how to reduce conflict with carnivores. If you're a farmer, if you're a pet owner, for example, she works with all the ranchers in British Columbia. And recently, uh, Shelley Marshall, the senior wildlife biologist, um, has been we've been introduced to. We have Bob Hansen, of course, Ben York. Mike Newton is our local uh, North Island conservation officer now. Uh, ben York has moved on to Nanaimo, is now in charge of the entire Pacific region uh, for the conservation officer service. Uh, Bob Hansen retired from Pacific Rim right now, but still right there and part of this community that supports us. So the... Um, the, the next carnivore that, that we've been given the opportunity to dialogue with now is the black bear. And, uh, and it, we've had a couple of very interesting calls to attention uh, in terms of paying attention to black bears uh, on Cortez Island. And the first of those was last year in the fall of 2019. We had a black bear that came in. Uh, and we've had this, we've had this, this uh, relationship with black bears for as long as anyone can remember, where, where, as Mike Newton said, we need to understand that the province of British Columbia is black bear country, the whole province. Those of us who live on the islands have a little bit of a respite from that because they actually have to physically swim here. We have no resident population of black bear um, that we know of, and the island's small enough that we should know uh, if we do. Uh, so we have always had bears come to the island seasonally in the fall, when there's old homesteads or your active orchard in your backyard and there's fruit on the ground. So we have always had black bears swimming to Cortez seasonally in the fall, um, helping themselves to what they can find and then generally leaving. Uh, we weren't necessarily aware of bears overwintering uh, on Cortez. So when I got a call early April this year that said, guess what? I just spotted a black bear at Green Mountain. I'm like, oops. Um, indicating very clearly that this young bear, probably a young two-year-old male, had overwintered, had put his head down on, on Cortez and then woken up uh, and Green Mountain. So two very important calls to attention just in terms of we, we have black bear and, and we really need to learn just what we learned with wolves is how do we coexist with these animals? How do we very responsibly and clearly uh, communicate, take responsibility for our boundaries, and communicate those boundaries to the um, to the actual bears. Um, yeah, so that's where we're at, and that's what prompted the writing of the bear primer. I just got it out, tenth of May. It's uh, it's up and in the community. 
What are the five points to coexisting with bears from the bear primer? What we did is we modeled the bear primer right on the wolf primer so that people weren't having to juggle something brand new that they could see something they related to. So that bear primer does the same thing. It just goes one, two, three, four, five. Um, never feed bears. Uh, don't feed other wildlife that attracts bears. Keep yourself safe. Keep your pets safe. And practice very good plant and and animal husbandry. So plant and animal husbandry. So that primer is up in the community. It's a bright green eight and a half by 11 laminated sheet that sits right alongside the bright yellow eight and a half by 11 laminated wolf primer um, in all the public places on Cortez Island in um, on the ferries as well and is available from the Foci website for people who want their own personal copies. As soon as I got the report of the bear uh, waking up and wandering around uh, Green Mountain and then into Larson's Meadow this April, I uh, decided that we just needed to nip that one in the bud and get a primer out as soon as possible. I had actually planned um, a fabulous wildlife conference for the island, again, to introduce the islanders to this amazing extended community of, of expertise that we have and just keep us in that conversation about coexistence and what's happening elsewhere in the province. And I had them all set up to arrive uh, first week of May and we got knocked out by COVID. But uh, interestingly enough, this little bear showed its face in, uh, in April and uh, I sat down right away with Mike Newton uh, in uh, the Miracle Beach office for the Conservation Officer Service. And Mike and I sat down, we drafted up one, two, three, four, five. We sent it off to Helen Schwancha, the provincial veterinarian. Uh, in turn, Helen sent that up to Shelley Marshall, who is a fabulous, uh, our fabulous uh, senior wildlife uh, biologist for British Columbia. And Shelley really cast her professional eye to that, and she made some important edits. And off it went, and I was really tickled that it went off on the 10th of May, which was the day of the wildlife conference that we were going to address bear smarts. <laughs> So again, the primary goal of this primer is to um, to to make very clear and take very be very responsible with the boundaries um, that we set uh, for for bears in our community and and communicate those with them. So maybe the easiest way to talk about uh, bears, um, which is what we're here to talk about, is uh, to actually go through the primer. It's, it's literally the one, two, three, four, fives of the, the, what we can do. And if every single person in this community consistently follows that primer, both for the wolves and the bears, we will, uh, we absolutely will affect uh, coexistence. We, we will succeed at coexistence. The community has done, the Cortez community has done an admirable job um, with the wolves. And um, there are more people walking their dogs with uh, the dogs on leash. There are more people who have their chickens and their livestock properly protected be behind, you know, six foot strong um, steel fencing and so forth. So the community has rallied. Um, we still can, can improve and, and work on it, but we've made some real strides in it. So I'm really positive going in um, to talk about bears. Um, Bears are a completely different beast from wolves. <laughs> wolves are one thing. They're carnivores. I mean, both the animals belong to order carnivora, so they're um, carnivorous animals. But bears are omnivores. They're omnivores. 80% of their diet is plant-based. Um, the other 20% will be rodents, insects, carrion. Um, they'll take all those things, but 80% of their diet is, is actually plant-based. And they are... Um, Bears are hibernators, so unlike wolves, 
bears hibernate. They spend, you know, up to half of their year hibernating. They, they sleep for half the year. So the, the, the main work that they have to do while they're awake all summer is eat. They just have to eat and eat and eat to put on enough fat reserves to metabolically be able to survive that sleeping period or that hibernation during the winter months. Um, they're not unlike uh, they're not unlike the humpback whales that we have swimming around Cortez Island right now. Those whales are here. They they give birth to their young, and they calve and and nurse their young in warm waters in Hawaii, in Mexico, in Mexican waters, and then they come up here. And they're feeding. It's just everything and every minute of every day they're feeding. So it's like, don't bother me, I'm feeding. And bears are very much the same. Those bears wake up in the spring. This young bear that we have on island who woke up in uh, Green Mountain is feeding. Uh, I mean, it's called, in bears, it's called hyperphagia. And it's hyper eating. It's just like excessive eating. The bears uh, are need to and are putting on up to twenty thousand calories a day. Um, you know, compared to a human who's two thousand or twenty five hundred calories um, that you're taking in. So twenty thousand calories a day. It just means I need to eat. And and animals have this innate ability to recognize the quality of food, which somehow we missed. Uh, given all the food you see people eating, but uh, but animals, bear especially, knows the highest caloric valued foods and will go straight for those. So bears are all about um, eating. They they hibernate. They're down for half the year. They need to put on these fat reserves, and it's all about eating. Uh, so the first uh, the first point in the bear primer, learning to live with bears on Cortez Island, is. Never feed bears. Uh, it's illegal in the province of British Columbia to feed any wildlife, to feed wolves, to purposely put out, put out food for, for bears or wolves or other animals. It's also um, an offense to unintentionally uh, leave what are called attractants out for bears. And the number one attractant for bears where bears get into trouble is garbage. So bears Bears, again, have this drive to eat, to consume 20,000 calories a day. So they're out there looking for food. They have, in order to find that food and to recognize the high caloric value of food, they have the most amazing nose. Um, they can, you know, you'll read the records of, of who says what, the research, and uh, they have a nose that can smell uh, up to a kilometer away, up to a mile away. Um, I saw a really interesting report where they, where they were writing specifically about the, the nose of the bear, saying that it is probably the most efficient sensory organ of any animal on the planet. Um, this is 10 to 20 times what your, what your household dog can smell and to sniff. So these are important things for people to know is like bears are here in the summer to feed. Bears have a nose that smell like nobody's business. And so we need to be responsible. So we can't leave out food, um, which I don't believe people... Uh, will be doing, but bear attractants and garbage being number one. So, you know, after you've prepared your dinner and you're doing your dishes and you're washing out that can of refried beans, man, you're in there getting every little scrap of bean with soap and water. You know, you've just taken the plastic cover off of the, the sausages you're eating that night or the cookies that you've unwrapped. You wash in soap and water. You wash 
everything that's ever touched food. And you are meticulous in terms of, of keeping all your food containers, your drink containers, all the packaging is clean, absolutely odor-free. Odor-free. Remember what we're dealing with. We're dealing with an animal that has, you know, the best nose on the planet. Um, storing your garbage in secure areas is very important. You just can't have it sitting out or around. I mean, we put our recycling out for for the recycling center, and that needs to be meticulously clean. We don't want to, you know, translate the problem from where we leave it out to where it's it's going to be uh, have to deal. Somebody's going to have to deal with it at the recycling center. So, hello, listeners. This is Manda again. At this point in the interview, I started slipping notes to Sabina. I wanted her to really explicitly say that putting food in garbage makes it smelly garbage. But it wasn't until the end of the interview that we really got to talk about it. And when I first asked her about the question of what to do about people putting food waste in the garbage, she couldn't make any sense of it. Nobody on Cortez throws food waste into their garbage, she said. Oh, yes, they do, I had to tell her. And I know this because in September and October of 2017, Cortez was part of a waste audit. And guess what was discovered? Cortez throws more organics in the trash than any other community in the entire Comax Strathcona region. 50% of our trash was organic waste. Indeed, only 30% of what Cortesians are throwing in the garbage is even garbage. Most of it is food waste and the rest is recyclables. Sabina was so shocked when she discovered this that she started calling around to all of her wildlife biologist friends to ask them what they officially recommend people to do. Sabina had to leave on her boat, although she's coming back to harvest her fruit trees so as not to feed the bears. So I assured her I would make explicit that no food waste should ever go into the trash. To learn more about how to turn your bones into biochar, you can listen to the Folk University talk Building Soil Fertility with Local Resources. That one's by Whitney Vanderleest, which you can find on Cortez Currents and on the folku.ca website. Or if you want one of your neighbors to compost your food scraps in their hot functioning compost bin, you can reach out to Whitney Vanderleest yourself. She's got room for more compost. Or you can talk to Kate Madigan, who can connect you with a network of neighbors accepting compost all across the island. If you're not sure how to get hold of either of them, contact me at you at folku.ca, letter U at folku.ca, and I'll hook you up with a neighbor to help. And if you need more guidance around recyclables, you can also find a Folku talk show on that. Check it out on folku.ca. Now back to Sabina and our quest to get bear smart as a community. Odor-free compost, odor-free garbage. Um, barbecues, it's summertime. Barbecues are going. People are on their barbecues. Boy, if you have a barbecue, those grills have to be cleaned after every use. The the grease traps the, that, that are on them, you take them out, you put them in the freezer, you empty them out, you clean them out, whatever. But again, meticulous. I can't emphasize that enough just because you know what you're dealing with. You're dealing with the best nose on the planet. So we don't want to attract bears um, in uh, to our, our compost, uh, into our recycling that's out for pickup or sitting at the free store or the recycling center. In terms of um, the second point on the primer is, is not feeding other wildlife. We had this with the wolves where we advise people not to be feeding deer 
or raccoons in their front yard because those are two obvious prey of wolves. And if you want wolves leaping into your yard, uh, you know, more often than not, that was one way to do it. So we're asking people not to feed wildlife in your front yard. And in the case of bears, I, I, it was complete news to me. I had no idea that bird feeders become bear feeders. And, and again, it's that ability of the bears to sense the high caloric value of seed and with these incredible oils in the seed. And so we're asking people not to have bird feeders out in the summertime. Certainly not, you know, when we have bears around and bears in the area. So bird feeders, great for birds suffering, you know, not enough food in the wintertime, putting the bird feeders out. But otherwise is, is not having bird feeders out because they ultimately become bear feeders. And, and there's so many ways that we can look after our our native birds. We can have bird baths though. We can plant flowering plants to support the hummingbirds and so forth. But if you've got sugar and high caloric seeds out there, and and if we have, if and when we have bears on island, that they they'll go for them. Uh, people, British Columbia. I mean, we're in the good company of the whole province of British Columbia here. We're really the only ones who aren't bear smart. As some of us in the islands where we've never really had to on a annual basis deal with bears so we're learning <laughs> but uh, I've seen photographs and, and heard accounts of people who who you know constantly trying to 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 not put out attractants and so somebody took their um, there was an account of someone taking their bird feeder and putting it out on their clothesline so it was way out in the middle of nowhere on the clothesline and a young bear cub came along and he grabbed onto the clothesline and he just hung onto the clothesline he climbed all the way out to the bird feeder at the end of the in the middle of the the uh, clothesline and took it that way so never underestimate what a bear can do to get at good food because that is you know modus operandi number one in the summer is to feed yourself the, um, the third point on the primer is um, in keeping yourself safe. So really understanding what to do around bears. And I know when I talk to people, people are really confused. I Well, I don't know whether I'm supposed to yell at them or whether I'm supposed to run or whether I'm supposed to play dead or what am I supposed to do? And uh, again, I'd really like to uh, encourage people to read up on bears. Fascinating animals, absolutely fascinating and uh, a lot of really well-researched-out information is on uh, a website called Wild Safe BC. And this is a BC, a British Columbia organization, that's dedicated to coexistence with uh, wildlife in general, carnivores, uh, a special focus on, but wildlife in general. I mean, everything from, we're talking BC, so we're talking from rattlesnakes to grizzly bears, um, they deal with, and they have a fabulous website. So, you know, simply www.wildsafebc. And you can get a lot of information, really excellent video tutorials on how to behave with bears. And the situations um, of what you do is dependent on the situation uh, you have. So, for example, if you encounter a black bear on Cortez Island, rule number one is you do not run, ever. You look at a bear, you think, big heavy guy, how fast can he run? Um, bears can outrun you going uphill, downhill, and on the flats. I read, um, what was it, 30, it was 40 feet a second when a bear is in a charge. It can cover 40 feet in a second. I, my jaw dropped, and I just went, wow, okay, I understand. You do not ever run from a bear. So if I was wandering down a trail, I was in Larson's Meadow and I came around the corner and there was a black bear, 
snuffling along the trail, I would stop. I would make the bear immediately aware that I was there in case it was not aware. Bears uh, apparently recognize the human voice. And so you need to speak in a voice loud enough for that bear to hear you and not a high squeaky voice. You don't want to do that. You want a good, solid, grounded voice, uh, strong enough to say, hey bear, I'm here. And you start to back up very slowly uh, from that bear. Bears generally, as soon as they recognize there's a human there, will go the other way. That's the, the, the general behavior uh, for bears is that they will go uh, the other way. So when you're hiking, walking, biking, generally with others is what you want to do. Um, and you realize that there may be bears around. So we have a bear up on Green Mountain. So if you're heading into Carrington and you're walking with a group of people, you are always talking. A lot of people talk about bear bells. The bell sound is actually very, very high and is often lost and, and not heard by the bear. I mean, their hearing, their, their eyesight and their hearing is about equivalent to, to ours, to humans. Um, but the sound of a bell is sometimes too high. It's the wrong sound. And so your voice is always the best sound. So if you're biking, hiking, you know, whatever, generally with more than one person and uh, always making sure that if there are bears uh, in the forest, that they're aware you are there so they can and in most cases, they will avoid you. Proactively carrying bear spray when we know there's a bear on island and you are in the backwoods of Vondana or, or Carrington is, um, is proactively carrying the bear spray. Uh, the rule with bear spray is you've got to know how to use it. And again, I, I can highly recommend the uh, Wild Safe BC website for, you know, three-minute tutorials on how to properly use bear spray. Um, what, you, what you effectively do is you're not trying to get the bear spray in the face of the bear. You never want the bear that close to you. You are effectively putting up a barrier, uh, a, a very um, deterring barrier to the bear to come across. So it's a barrier that's placed between you and the bear. And bear spray is basically capsicum and it is an irritant to the, the lining of your eyes, to the soft membranes of your eyes and your nose and the inside of your mouth. Um, so you need to have that bear spray on you. Uh, all bear spray has uh, the propellant that's involved in, in projecting the spray is, um, uh, is time sensitive. And so there are expiry dates on bear spray. So you need to make sure that the bear spray you have purchased and have is actually still active. It has not expired. You need to always have it accessible. You cannot have it in your pack. You have to have it on your hip, right? And there are holsters or you may have some other way, but you've got to be able to grab it instantly. Um, and to, to know that uh, it has not expired and you know how to use it. And that is creating that barrier, shooting slightly, you know, down from center back and forth. But again, these videos are two minutes of your time to look at those really exceptionally empowering to, to know how to use them. If you're in your, uh, house, you're in your backyard and all of a sudden a bear wanders in, then, um, get into safety, which is into your house and observe the bear in your yard and try to nail down what is attracting it. So what is the attractant that's there? And when the bear has left is removing the attractant. So maybe the attractant was the bird feeder. Maybe the attractant was, you know, fruit, uh, ripe fruit on, on the bushes or something. Maybe it was bones that you had out there feeding the dog or something, but identify what it was that attracted the bear and remove that, um, is how to keep yourself basically safe. So 
basic rules around keeping yourself safe and then keeping your pets safe as number four in the primer. And again, um, bears have very low tolerance for dogs. And when you're walking with your dogs, number one, it's like the rules with wolves. Don't take your dogs when you're in the wilds of Carrington or Von Donop in places that are frequented by both wolves and bears. Uh, when you do walk your walk your walk your dogs, is is make sure that they are on a leash. For wolves, the message is very clear. It's like that is yours. The dog belongs to you, and the wolf will not take the the dog off of the leash. That's the message. Is the communication, and for bears, uh, a dog running around will will attract a bear, and as the dog comes back to you, it will simply bring the bear back to you. So keeping your dogs on leash uh, is very important. Uh, we feed our pets. And the best thing to do is always feed your pets inside. Uh, no matter how careful you are in an outside feeding area, there's going to be food that drops. There's going to be odor. The oil from the food is going to go into the grass or whatever it is. There's a bone out there or something. So feeding pets in a secure location could be inside the house. It could be inside a, a garage, uh, something like that. So keeping your, your yard very free of, of attractants, the food for your, for your pets needs to be kept in a very safe area where those odors cannot be detected and the bears cannot get in. So it needs to be what we call bear resistant. Nothing is bear proof. It's like all the rain gear you buy today. Everybody goes, oh, this is, this is rainproof, right? It's not. It's rain resistant. Uh, it's uh, nothing really is probably bear proof. So bear resistant. Uh, if you're keeping your animal feed, then, then locked inside a garage that a bear cannot get into. And, you know, in good packaging and so forth so that the, the scent is not uh, obvious to them. The one incident we had with um, uh, the black bear, again, this call to attention last fall, was a bear came in uh, on a homeowner. It, it came in with uh, fallen fruit on the ground. Uh, that was the first attractant in. When that was responsibly removed by the, the landowner, the bear came back again because he'd found food there once and he smelled the dog food, uh, basically the pet food that was kept inside the porch but the bear found its way through the wood chute into the porch and dragged out the food. So again, when we see, when, when you say bear proof, it's like really bear proof. Is your porch actually bear proof or is there a wood chute that it can come marching through? Um, so again, keeping your pets safe, being responsible with your food. And number five on the primer is practicing good plant and animal husbandry. And this is the huge thing with bears and, and where we, we have a situation that is attracting bears is we all have orchards, we have fruit trees, that fruit falls to the ground. And if there are bears here, and this is generally when the bears swim to Cortez is in the fall to check out what's happening. We've had enough old homesteads dropping fruit over the years that the bears understand where fruit is available and they come in for it. So with our with with fruit, it's you you cannot have fruit hit the hit the ground. It needs to be harvested daily, uh, harvested ahead of time before it's it's ripe and ready to fall. You need to do the same thing with uh, windfalls from um, fruit bearing bushes and so forth. Is really be on top of harvesting. This is the most incredible berry year I've ever seen. Um, we've just been in the wilds walking, and I've never seen such heavy, heavy crops in all of the wild bushes. Huckleberries are ballistic this year. And uh, and our own domestic berries, such as the, the blueberries and the raspberries, uh, it doesn't matter what the berry is, wild or domestic, those bushes are loaded this year. 
which the first thing it says to me is like, wow, I need to get those off in time and not um, provide any attractant for a bear that might be wandering around uh, Cortez Island. You can proactively use electric fencing if you have, you know, a few trees. Uh, and this is something that's very important with bears and very effective with bears is electric fencing, uh, not only for plants, um, but for animals as well. And your livestock, same thing. Your livestock need to be protected from bears and they need to be behind electric fencing. And we have that expertise and that experience on Cortez. I was just speaking with Tamara McPhail at Linnea Farm. And for the last several years, um, Tamara has... Um, has been using electric fencing. She said a slightly different system than what she had first been introduced to, uh, very cost effective. And I've been talking to Tamara about uh, the possibility of her being able to sit with folks if there is interest and uh, running a small workshop, giving a tutorial basically in how to use that, how to effectively use the uh, electric fencing and uh, all the costs involved, uh, Tamara said, in a wheelbarrow, she can carry everything she needs for a large, a very large area. And the cost is, you know, less than $500, $300, something like that. So very practical ways. Um, if you have livestock, if you have large areas in fruit, uh, in fruit trees, is using that electric fencing. And, and the proper installation of that electric fencing is, uh, and the maintenance is, is key to that. And so, again, we're going to try to set up... Um, some workshops, if that's possible, um, on the island for people. So you need to be really diligent about uh, uh, your fruit. Uh, if you if you attract a, a bear in, you know, based on fruit, uh, the next thing he's going to be in the middle of your garden, and uh, that's not a scene that any of us want to see. <laughs> are the bears um, in the middle of our very prolific vegetable gardens? So again. Um, important practice here for plant and animal husbandry just as uh, for wolves in being responsible with uh, animals is when we harvest um, our animals when we butcher our animals is being responsible with the carcasses and those carcasses can never be just tossed over the back fence uh, those carcasses need to be uh, buried very deeply and very uh, far away from residential areas um, otherwise, we will be attracting both bears and wolves uh, into our into our residential areas. So people are be even being asked. A lot of people who smoke fish on island, and while you're preparing, curing the the fish uh, or the meats, and getting them ready, and you've got them in smokers outside, those areas should be surrounded by electric fencing and protected for that period of time. Um, if we know bears are on island, so that's that's our basic primer. Um, on bears and and we're just trying to get people to understand how bears work you know you got these big boys out there and they've slept all winter and they're feeding all summer and they need 20,000 calories of food a day and their nose is the best nose on the planet and so we need to be responsible at our end to avoid any conflict and to to really um, communicate very clearly with them that we're not we're not putting out bird feeders to attract them in we're not moving smelly garbage out to attract them into to a situation of conflict and uh, we're going to be responsible with our pets and we're going to understand how to act around them when we bump into them uh, unintentionally and again we're we're going to uh, to be responsible with our livestock so one two three four five uh, very simple simple things that we need to do and exceptionally effective in the long-term goal of coexisting with our carnivores on Cortez. 
do you think there are actually more bears or are we just seeing more on Cortez? Uh, so every area is going to be quite unique in terms of what is actually happening. Uh, there's a lot of movement right now with uh, a growing population of grizzly bears on, on the mainland of, of British Columbia. We've heard a lot about the grizzlies moving into the islands and the small islets offshore in the central coast. Uh, so that is, is a definite movement. There are big teams of uh, people working with those local populations of bears to try to understand exactly what's happening. On Cortez, we've always had bears on Cortez. Um, it's nothing new. When I first talked to Mike Newton and said, hey, this little bear just woke up in April. What the heck are we going to do? He's like, come on. He said, Cortez Island, he said, needs to understand that Cortez Island, you know, the islanders need to understand that the island is black bear country. He said the whole province of British Columbia is black bear country. I mean, there's 150,000 black bears in British Columbia. We've got black bears everywhere. Every community um, always has bears. Increased uh, conflict with bears, uh, which is happening annually, uh, the increased number of calls that the conservation officer officers receive, and that, for the most part, that is a growing population of people that is basically a population of people that grow and then keep expanding their residences into wild habitat, which is occupied um, by not only bears, uh, other carnivores as well. So we're seeing an increased number of people, and then it's increased recreational opportunities that are putting us more and more into the face of wildlife that, that for many years was minding its own business in wild lands. And for example, on Cortez, we don't know. We haven't done this research. We don't really know. I'm I'm collecting information. I spent 11 years collecting information on wolves just to try to start to understand what's happening with wolves on the island. Nobody knows. Nobody's ever done research here. Nobody has any facts or figures on it. We've probably got the best information and insight, which is why all of the biologists and the conservation officer service and the provincial veterinarian, why everybody is supporting us because we're doing good work that no one else is doing. We're just starting that with bears now because all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, we're seeing bears more often. There are more falls, um, autumn seasons where there's been a bear in the whale town area and that bear goes across into Squirrel Cove. And now we've had a sighting, the first that we know of in April, except then when I start talking amongst the community bears and getting the local ecological knowledge, which is out there, is, no, 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 people say to me, the bears have always been here and they've always been overwintering and they do it on the north end and we're blessed on Cortez with having almost the whole northern half of the island still being wild land, which is why we have uh, an intact and healthy population of coastal wolves here and why we have possibly black bears, a healthy population on the North Island, is um, I have observations from local people where, you know, regularly along Von Donup in those areas in the spring, they see the black bear out foraging in the intertidal areas, which implies that they were overwintering on the island. And again, that's wild area. We're not in there as often, but now there's more people going into these areas. So you have more people seeing the animals that are there. So I think for Cortez, we've always had black bear haven't really been paying attention to black bear. Um, we're just paying more attention now. Um, I, I'm studying um, a wildlife corridor, a very important wildlife corridor in the Welltown area. We've been documenting that corridor. And uh, I have wildlife cameras up. And uh, two years ago, I had my cameras up and, and uh, took, took my 
looking at the photos and the record that I had after the summer. And lo and behold, <laughs> towards uh, the end of September, all of a sudden, there's this big black butt going right through one of my photo frames. And I'm like, what was that? And, and caught the black bear on it. So this is the very beginning of learning, oh, actually, that's where they're moving from point A to point B um, and understanding the movements of the wildlife. So uh, I think to a great extent, specifically on Cortez, um, what we're seeing is we're more aware, we're paying more attention, um, we're actually pushing further into our wild areas, recreating or exploring. Um, just this summer, I'm doing a lot of research in the northern areas of Cortez, and we're looking for signs of, of activity of our carnivores. We're trying to peg down where the important wildlife corridors are. We're, we're ultimately working towards a strategic conservation plan for Cortez Island um, at the Friends of Cortez Island uh, Society level. And... Uh, and, and wildlife movement is a big part of that uh, for us. So I, I think on Cortez locally, the little I know is um, I, I think we're paying more attention. I think the bears are here. They've always been here. And uh, all kinds of other things are happening around us in other areas of BC. So it's very specific to different areas. And I, I can't really speak to the rest of BC, which is it's true in all areas, especially in the news are the grizzly bears and the, and the, the movement of bears. Uh, from the mainland into the islands and ultimately working their way across to Vancouver Island. When we spot bears on Cortez, what do we do? Can we contact you or the Friends of Cortez Island? Thank you for the question. It's exactly where we're going to. Um, when I first got thrown into the Wolf Project, uh, immediately the, the primer went up and it was, here's what we need to teach the community about how to uh, be responsible uh, in coexisting with wolves. But what happened over those 11 years is, is at the same time we launched the primer, we also launched a research project into wolves and their behavior. Uh, Bob Hansen had been involved. He had established a 10-year program uh, on the west coast of Vancouver Island with the coastal wolves called uh, Wild Coast. And so Bob said, hey, while you've got wolves here, why don't you pay attention and, and start documenting things? So we have documented uh, wolf activity for the last 11 years on Cortez and have some pretty amazing records. And again, it's a citizen science project where people, people were provided with a, a place to call and to report what they saw. And basically, I was that point person. Folk Guy's uh, email was that point email to to call into and we established this project with the uh, wolves we are literally in the process right now I, I mean the primer popped out in may because the bear popped out in april um foci uh, we're sitting down at a board level helen hall as the regional as the executive director we're sitting down with um, again my extended community of people shelly marshall a senior wildlife biologist mike newton uh, the Conservation Officer Service, Helen Schwancha, the Provincial Veterinarian, were sitting down and talking about how to now begin a, a, a research program on Cortez that will do exactly what you just asked. How do we actually keep track of the bears and where they are? And I think we'll model very much on, on what happened with what we did with the wolves that was very effective is having a point source, and that will uh, eventually be and, and is the foci office. And certainly at this point in time, if people are seeing bears on Cortez and so forth, you can email uh, friends of Cortez at gmail.com. You can call and leave a message at the office, 0087. We're in it. We're just, we've just thrown ourselves into the middle of it. Um, and at this point in time, what I can say to people is, yes, if you have seen a bear, 
and uh, and that should be reported and and send it along to Friends of Cortez Island again at the email. And autumn this summer, we'll be picking up those accounts and keeping track of things and in touch with the Conservation Officer Service. The rule we have uh, that we developed with the um, Wolf Primer was that we, uh, our, our primer and our whole research project was 100% endorsed by the Conservation Officer Service of British Columbia. And the, uh, the rules are that if there is a routine sighting of a wolf or a bear, a routine sighting like, oh, I saw the wolves moving down the beach. Uh, I saw a wolf cross my path. I saw a bear in Larson's Meadow. That's a routine sighting. And you would report that to FOCI, is what the, C uh, the Conservation Officer Service is asking. Routine sightings are reported to FOCI. And then uh, interactions or uh, sightings, uh, interactions of concern, then are sent directly to the Conservation Officer Service. 24-7 line, one eight seven seven nine five two, you know, 7277 so routine sightings of bear and wolf into the foci uh, email or the phone, and then uh, observations or interactions of concern go directly to the Conservation Officer Service. And again, the bear primer, 100% endorsed by the Conservation Officer Service with input from all of our provincial professionals. And we will be announcing more. FOCI will be announcing more about the bear program as we develop it. It's just, it's happening as I speak. Thank you, Sabina, for sharing your knowledge and experience with us. And thank you, neighbor. I hope you'll be inspired to learn more. You have been listening to Sabina Leader Mentz talk about coexisting with bears on Cortez Island. This program was funded by a grant from the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Government of Canada's Local Journalism Initiative. I am Manda O'Fox Gillespie with Cortez Currents. Goodbye. Mmm. -hmm.